Neighborhood Church. To find out more about who we are, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. Well, I'm excited. Um, I practiced this message um, like two times, and I imagine this. I really love what I have to say, right? My own thing. I'm already slapping my own back, right? Um, and if you're watching, even if you're here, but especially if you're wa- watching online or you're listening to the podcast, if, if you're listening to the podcast, I don't need to look in the camera. I just realized that. I'm like, they, they don't know I'm looking in the camera. If you're listening to podcasts, I'm looking at you right now. Um, uh, um, I'd love to hear about um, your experience in neighborhood. Uh, we said it earlier, but like uh, Jamie and I were talking about how we've met so many people that are like, oh yeah, I go to neighborhood that I've actually have not either seen like in two and a half years. I didn't know that they belonged to our church. And so if you consider yourself a part of this church and we've never interacted, I'd love to shoot me a DM or um, Steve, that means direct message um, or an email or you can um, uh, text us at our, uh, on our, what do you call it, neighborhood um, phone, um, but I'd love to interact with you a little bit more to see who you are, hear your story, and if you would like to go get some coffee, I'll even buy you coffee, because I am a really good person. So, I got it wrong. Here we go. Why is that funny to you, Father? <laughs> you know you're not. I know you. There's guys. All right, so we're in our second part of our series. Um, it's called On Earth, and um, when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he says, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is um, implying that whatever heaven is, we are to participate it, to be it, engage with it, create it, like right now, not just um, later. And so then that implies, well, what is heaven, right? Heaven has to be something more than um, angels in a cloud somewhere else. And how do we learn about what this kingdom of heaven is? Jesus does it through um, their works, and he does it through, they do it through their words. And the primary way that uh, Jesus teaches about the kingdom of heaven with words is this thing called parables. And to, con- to call a parable, it's like a story, is like comparing like Van Gogh is just like, uh, that's just a paint, Right? This one theologian, this Episcopalian priest, talked about um, Jesus takes like, a grenade and throws it into the conversation and everything gets blown up. Because Jesus, <laughs> I read this, Jesus is not a hick, right? There's times, and that's not the meaning if you're a hick, right? If you want to be a hick, go hicks, right? But there's times that we think of Jesus being this, look, just a poor little uh, carpenter's son back in the country, right? That's how Jesus would sound, right? Um, and where Jesus lived was Galilee, and Galilee was on the Silk Road, right? This is on the Silk Road. There's tons of culture. There's tons of things to be learned. And the way that Jesus teaches is part of this wisdom tradition that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. Um, Jesus, it's not hard to imagine many theologians of Jesus belonging to this very mystic um, group of, uh, of Jewish, um, Jewish mysticism that was heavily informed by, of course, the Hebrew Bible, but also the wisdom tradition, that Jesus is um, constantly through these parables, helping us move from like this binary way of thinking um, into this non-duality consciousness, right? Which is like a really fun word to say. It makes me sound really smart. But it's this whole idea of what was, right, doesn't always mean it has to be, that there is this 
higher way of thinking, there's this high way of being, there's this higher way of doing, right? And what does it cost you? Everything, right? And the way that things were maybe don't always have to be. Jesus says, you've heard it this way, now I say, right? He has all these words about this pivoting. Um, and like a classic example is uh, in John 1, there's these two guys that creep on Jesus. They sneak up from behind, and they say, uh, hey, Jesus, where do you live? Because they heard these rumors about who the Jesus was. And if I asked, like, Tony, where do you live? You would say, Proctor, right? Perfect example, right? And in our minds, we already have made up an assumption of who Tony is because of our, the, the great reputation of Proctor, right? right? We'd say, oh, Proctor people are, right? Like if you said um, Esco, you'd be like, roll your eyes, right? At least I wouldn't say Hermantown because then we'd all collectively roll our eyes. Oh, we're happy for you, right? Um, and so uh, these people are coming up to Jesus and they're saying, where do you live? And we would automatically think a geographic location. But then they would make that snap judgment about Jesus. That's a very binary way of thinking. Oh, you live in Carleton. You live in Proctor. You live in Duluth. Therefore, you're this. And Jesus doesn't answer that way. Jesus says, come and see. It, Jesus welcomes people into this experience of, I'm not just giving you information. I'm not just telling you what to do. I'm asking you to participate with me. I'm asking you to swim in it with me of how do I treat my neighbors? How do I treat uh, my, my neighbor's dog who runs up at me? How, how do I keep my apartment? How do I interact with the people around me? There's this whole part of experience. And once you see in the parables that Jesus is just not answering questions, it's an invitation, all right? It's an invitation of uh, a, a different way of being human. And so today we're talking about Matthew 18. Has anyone ever heard of the Matthew 18 principle? Anyone in church world ever said, so we would have followed the Matthew 18 principle? Oh, this is so good. Um, I, I, I might sound really snarky at times, but I, I'm a really good person. <laughs> I just want just to throw that out there, precursor. All right, so we're going to go through the whole uh, chapter of Matthew 18. I'm not going to read any specific part of Scripture. If, uh, Molly, you want to call me a heretic, you can. That's fine. Um, I'd encourage you to go back and read it. Big fan of the Bible, right? Take it incredibly seriously. Here at Neighborhood, we don't always take everything literally. Um, and if you want to talk through more about Matthew 18, I would love, I love to talk about it. So where it starts is right there. Um, it's a common question. Uh, Jesus gets this question all the time, like, oh, who is the greatest, Jesus, right? And they're trying to, they hear that there's this power. They hear of this kingdom of what is to come. And, of course, when you think power, you think money, you think any kind of, like, being the center of something, you want to get as close as you can because then you get to be the gatekeeper, right? You get to draw the lines. You get to decide what's good or bad and who's in or out as a very human, very normal, very rational response. And so Jesus um, never answers them directly. Instead, Jesus um, invite, like, points to this kid, right? And he says, unless you take on this position, unless you become like this kid, and the way that it was taught, I don't think is bad, I don't think is wrong, is um, you have to have faith like a child, right? It means you just got to be innocent, and you just kind of like move around the world not knowing anything, because kids know nothing, right? They, they just, they know nothing. And so when it was presented to me of like, you just got to have faith like a kid, and just, just say yes to the Lord. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, right? Uh, and um, do you know what that's from, Anyone? Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes. That's a great old Pentecostal. Yeah, you got it. You got the old Pentecostal in you still, Jamie. Um, um, uh, what am I talking about? Yes, Lord. Oh, it, it, instead of having just being as innocent, which I think is beautiful, right? But is Jesus really saying that we have to, like, not use 
uh, rational science? Do we, are we just supposed to be like ignorant of how we move in this world? Are we not supposed to ask questions? Are we not supposed to like um, use our intellect, right? And some people would say, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but instead, what many other people would interpret this is what Jesus is talking about is a class system, right? Kids did not have a whole lot of value. Not that they despise kids, right? But they were just like one theologian said, they tried getting the kid out of the kid as soon as possible, right? Helping these kids grow into something that fits the system, that benefits the system. Kids are just kind of in the way. So they would kind of push them to the side, right? As we saw in that story of the adults are pushing away and Jesus is welcome all kids to me. Jesus is like exposing, like you just treat these people as the least and last. You treat these people saying, you can go on the edges, Stand over there. You can watch, but you don't get to play. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be like, who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's the people who are watching that you keep pushing to the side. Then he goes into a very weird verse where he says, and if you harm any of these to the, to the kids, it's better to take a millstone, this like incredibly heavy stone, wrap it on your neck, and then throw yourself into the water, right? Now, um, let's pause. If you were to take any of these passages and just isolate them, you could see how they could be very um, dangerous, right? That verse has been tweeted to me, emailed to me, said to me, like, many, many, many times. Because they, their interpretation is if you don't have correct doctrine, if you, if you don't have the same, really, it's if you don't have the same theology or my interpretation of God or a, like, Romans chapter 1, like, one little verse, if it's different than me, then that's, it's, it's better, Jesus, you, the Bible says that I believe it, Jesus saying, that could bring harm to me, therefore you should throw yourself, <laughs> right? So A, anytime we use the words of Christ as a weapon, as a threat, as a, right? We have missed the plot completely. Because nowhere in the life of Christ is Christ this aggressor? Is Christ this, like, strong man? He's, he's, Jesus is out to show of what it means to be a peacemaker, right? Second of all, is that what Jesus is really saying? Is Jesus really saying, hey, you, if you're going to bring any harm to people, it's better to be dead, right? You should just do that because that's not who Jesus is at all. So what, what is Jesus talking about, right? If he's pointing to the kids and saying, uh, who's the greatest? It's the ones who push aside. And if you bring any harm to the people that you forgot, if you are part of a system or an empire that intentionally has created this system to reward some and intentionally or unintentionally uh, punish these people, he really is saying, then the kind of life that you think you're getting, you're never going to get. This life that you hope for, this power, this grasping, clasping, the thing that you hope that you attain, you're never going to do it. Why? Because the kingdom of God is over here. Because heaven is already taking place and you're missing it. It's not a threat, it's a reality, right? Then Jesus goes on and he goes to the lost sheep. And he says, if one sheep like went off, we would leave the 99 and we'd go after one. And most of us would be like, yeah, I do that all the time, right? I would totally go after the sheep. The, the bigger story is, uh, would you leave what the world says is successful? If I say with the 99, I have more money, I have more fame, I have more popularity, I can, you can stand in front of all your sheep and take a picture and say, look at me, I got all these sheep with me. Why would I leave for one, if, especially if more sheep leave while I'm gone or something happens? What Jesus is saying is the least and the last, right, the meek shall inherit the earth, the, the people are pushed aside, we're going to not bring any harm to them, and we always, always include, we always go after the person because they always have belonged. 
And even though it might be unattractive, this is what we do when we move in the kingdom of God. Then he goes into this incredibly weird part. It gets weird and weirder. Then it's like out of nowhere, he's like, hey, let's talk about sin in church, right? And he does not define what sin is. He does not say, uh, if you, well, what, what was I told was a sin? If you listen to secular music, right? If you listen to something uh, that's not inherently Christian music, right? Which my argument always is like, what about classical music? All right, that wasn't Christian music. So are you a horrible person because you listen to classical music? Yeah, that was a real treat. Um, and so Jesus says, if there's sin, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to the person, right? Like I'd go up to John and be like, hey, John, I really um, don't like what you're doing. Actually, it's different than me. Sin, uh, Natalie Boltz Weber, who's this amazing writer and um, Lutheran theologian, um, says um, sin is the human propensity to um, screw things up. And she changes that word to a more vulgar word, right? It's a human propensity just to, just to screw things up, in which we all hold that capacity. Instead of sin being specifically an action, it's uh, our ability to feed our ego, essentially. So Jesus leaves it undefined. And so if I said, John, I don't like, I think you're doing something different from me, and I don't like it. And so Jesus says, go to your brother, John. And, and, and he'd say, hey, I'm good. Thanks for caring. Then I'd go to my crew and say, hey, guys, you got to stop what you're doing. We have to go talk to my buddy John because... I don't like what he's doing. It's different than me. And then I go, like, hey, John, all of us are here, four of us. And we're like, hey, time to change. Be like us. And John's like, hey, I'm, I'm fine cruising around in my minivan, dude, right? So then Jesus says, then go and bring John in front of the entire church, right? This is the Matthew 18 principle I talked about earlier, right? And then the whole church would be like, hey, John, be like us, not like you. We don't like what you're doing. And legitimately, it could be something that's harmful to himself, Right? It could be harmful to the community. It could be harmful to the church. But it's just, it's different. That's all it is. And then Jesus says, and John still says, why am I in front of all of you? I don't know why I agreed to this. And then he's like, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Then Jesus says, then treat him. Right? Treat him. Like the tax collectors and the pagans. I want you to remember that. Tax collector, if you're taking notes at home, write that one down. Tax collectors and pagans. Then Peter says, he goes, all right, all this, like, sin and this confronting and forgiveness. Okay, Jesus, how many times should I actually do that? Let's be honest. How many times do I have to go to John and say, hey, John, you're different than me? And then, then get my, interrupt my friends and interrupt church. It's like seven times, right? And seven is like this perfect number. It's this holy number. And still, what Peter is doing is saying, how much love do I have to extend? Where's this line? When do I finally get to be, like, totally right? And Jesus responds with 77, right? Which, again, is, like, not just a number. Jesus is saying, like, this perfection, this, this completion is, like, so much bigger than you think. It's, like, double perfection. And really, or I'm not going to get on that later, right? So Jesus goes from the marginalized push to the side. He goes to if you participate in a system that brings even harm to them, you're missing the plot. Then he goes to the sheep. Then he goes to sin and church and John driving in his minivan. Then it goes to how many times do I uh, ask for forgiveness? And then Jesus goes, let me tell you a story. The kingdom of heaven is like this uh, king, and he's like a, a bookkeeper, and he knows all where all his money is at. And there's one dude, one of his servants, who owes him just like, um, <laughs> I almost I almost swore. <laughs> that would have been the first time. Uh, an incredible amount of money, all right? It's just a lot of money. And uh, uh, so he throws the servant in front of him, and he says, hey, man, um, I want my money. 
And the guy's like, oh, please have mercy on me. Blah. It has this emotional response. And he goes, well, I'm going to lock up your family and your wife, and they're going to be in prison because apparently that's going to get me more money, and that's what kings do. And the, the servant um, um, asked for mercy more. And for whatever reason, what it says is that this king has this uh, compassion. He sees the servant. He hears the servant. He believes the servant. And it, the Greek word says that it comes, this compassion, this love, this mercy comes from the bowels. It's something deep within, something that awakens. And he says, yeah, then, like, we're good. Go and be free. There's no, like, like negotiation. There's no, like, well, we'll reduce it to 25%. It's just, it's, it's, it's done. It's gone. Like, go, go live your best life. And so the servant, I imagine, is like, what? That worked? Gets up. And moves on and uh, finds someone who owes him like 10 bucks and maybe some like Kohl's cash and says, hey, I, I need that. I need it like now. And the servant goes through the same process of like, oh, have mercy on me. And he says, ah, that doesn't work. I'm not a sucker like that king. Um, I'm throwing you in prison. And what is revealed is there's like two different ways of living life here that Jesus is inviting us into. There's this king. And this king had a way of being. He had a system of how he treated people. People were just pawns. People were just part of this game. They were just numbers, and they were all there to serve his ego, his pocketbook, his pleasure. And all of a sudden, there's this transformation of where he sees the human as really a human, that maybe we're more of the same than we are different, and it moves him. And there's a way of there's a death to one system and a resurrection into a new way of being human. And then the other guy, sees everyone clearly as a pawn, everyone as like on this hustle to feed his ego, and he has an opportunity, he, he's benefiting from it, and what does he do? He says, oh, this system's going to work even better for me, right? Uh, death and life, and this person, this servant, continually chooses death. And at the end, Jesus says, um, hey, by the way, um, my father's going to treat you like this, right? Lock you up in prison, you evil and wicked man. My father's going to treat you like this unless you forgive from the heart. How does all of Matthew 18 make sense? Here's how it works. Jesus is exposing that the way that we've created what belongs, the way that we've created what it means to be human, what we've created to be holy, he's saying it's not working anymore. What it's producing is violence. What it's producing is you missing out on where heaven actually is, where we're willing to just let people walk off. And then he throws in, like, who we are to, to forgive is not a conscious decision, right? Because Peter is saying, how many times do I have to forgive you know, this holy number, this perfect number? It's almost as when Jesus said 77, Jesus, it's almost like he's saying, why would you want to know when to stop loving? Why would you want to know where to stop extending mercy and grace and forgiveness and kindness and inclusion? Like, that's not even, that's not even in the conversation, You've like, you're asking the wrong questions. It's always been. This love and this mercy and this life and this uh, radical benevolence has always been here. And the system you're making is missing. You're asking the wrong questions. So how does church sin and confrontation in John's minivan all make sense, right? What Jesus is doing is almost like he's holding up a mirror. Because at the end, he says what? Pagans? and tax collectors. If they do all this, treat them the same way as pigs and tax collectors. How did Jesus, um, what tables did Jesus sit at? Who did Jesus party with? 
Who was, who was Jesus moving on the dance floor with at, at those weddings? Pagans and tax collectors. When we take that one passage and we, we don't hear the story of the sheep, we don't hear the story about the kids, we don't hear the story of this benevolent king, right? We don't hear the story of the, the, this infinite love and we just hold on to that. Because this is in church's bylaws. The Matthew 18 principle is literally a way of, like, how do we handle in community this sin? Can you imagine being in a church in the middle of service and, like, we like, and people do this. They bring up and say, we're exposing your sin. And usually they do it, like, we're not inviting John. They surprise John, right? Hey, John, guess what? <laughs> right? Can you imagine sitting in the church and be like, what is going on here? Because when, they, when people take that and say, well, we're going to treat them like pagans and, and tax collectors, which they, the first initial reading be like, oh, we're supposed to, like, not like you. We're supposed to excommunicate you. And many, many, many churches have done this. So is Jesus saying that we, because we have a disagreement, because we have a different way, and if you're on the camera, John's sitting over here, that's why. <laughs> right? Is, am I supposed to just then like say, since you're not like me, I'm casting you off the island, I'm casting you away from this community? Because really what you're doing is you're dehumanizing them. I'm saying John is not worth my attention, my love, or my compassion. Since John is different from me, I'm supposed to not extend kindness or inclusion, right? Can you see the irony of Jesus using these words? In no way is he saying to strip the humanity off someone. If you take in the light of everything else, it's that we always include, and why wouldn't we? There's the same Episcopalian priest that I cannot remember her name. Um, and she, she said, there is only one true life, and that true life is when you realize there's indivisible love. That when you love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? It's not like I look at Sarah and say, well, Sarah's my neighbor, so I'm supposed to love Sarah. And um, Sarah and I are very different. And maybe Sarah's over here and I'm over here. And she has these experiences. I have these experiences. We can go to a very binary way of thinking of saying, well, she's smarter than me. She's more successful than me. We can, like, size each other up and say, well, then I'll extend love in those places. The indivisible love is that I am Sarah and Sarah is me. I am John and John is me. That when we see each other as humans, instead of stacking each other up, instead of trying to rank each other, if we can see each other that, that, that we are all deeply connected and everyone belongs, then of course we're going to love. Then it's not a decision of how much time should I give Sarah, how, how should I do this, it's what we do, it's who we are. Imagine it being like this stream. If there's a stream right in the middle of this room, Jesus saying, why are you trying to ask these questions? Just step into the stream. Step into this way of life. And where does it take you? That is the kingdom of heaven. So forgiveness is something more than just a conscious decision. Forgiveness is something more than, all right, Tony, I forgive you, right? Like my mom, she happens to be right here, and she loves it when I do this. She used to, like, make me and my brother Dano, like, Forgive your brother. That's, that's how my mom said. Right? <laughs> At least I forgive your brother right now, right? And, uh, and they're like, uh, tell each other you love him. I love you, Dano. Right? And then like hug, uh, right? And it's like dance, monkey. And then we start dancing, and we call the police. And no, I'm joking. <laughs> right? Forgiveness is something so much more. So here's some tips about forgiveness, and I, I will be done. Um, it's, uh, there was this guy named Rob Bell. He has this thing called the Robcast, and it was on forgiveness. It was a couple weeks ago. It was great. And he said, um, write out a list of the people that 
you hate. And he said that, and I'm like, I don't like that word. He's like, no, it's true, right? Like, if, if we had, like, a, a whiteboard up here, and we said, oh, we said, hey, Chris, write out the people you hate. I have people on that list, right? I do. And he'd say, write them out. And these are people, when you hear their name, it takes your breath. These are people, and maybe I'm the only one who does this. Uh, do you ever, like, uh, you're going into, like, uh, a grocery store, you're going into a place, and you're like, what if that person is in that aisle, and then I have to, like, think about, what would I do? Do I, like, you know, jump into the other aisle? Do I wave? Do I hug? Do I try, like, like do I do the Superman pose? I'm like, oh, I am big and strong, all right? Like, am I the only one who has, thinks through that? Okay. I don't mind. I don't mind being elite, so... Um, but those people on that list would be people I'd be thinking about, what do I do if I see them, right? And some of these people have um, said horrible things to me, have done um, horrible things to my family, right? Like, and that, that, that's true for all of us. We all have those experiences of those people. And what Rob said is, like, just look at all of them and imagine where can you extend love today in this moment to maybe one of those people, maybe two of those people. I'm, I'm like, huh, that's actually brilliant. Because this forgiveness from the heart is a supernatural act. It's not just me, I forgive this person. It's I have to sit with it and say, oh, wh- what do I want to do with this hate? Because we want to hold on to hate. We like to hold on to anger at times because it makes us feel justified for it. Instead, forgiveness can be this way of like, you can meditate, you can go to therapy and talk about it, you can get a cup of coffee with a friend, you can go for a, like a walk in the woods, and I, I, this is literally what I do. You're all going to hear my crazy. I walk in the woods and I have pretend conversations with these people. And I ask, oh, I don't want to cry. I ask the question of what did I do that, that demanded that violence you brought against me, right? And then I, I talk it out, and it's therapeutic, and it helps me move from these people being evil or bad or horrible. The truth is, if I'm going to love my neighbor as I'm going to love myself, I am that person, and that person is me. And I'm at a place where I have to work through it. And even, what Rob said, is even as you look at the list and you have a little bit of compassion like that king, you have a, 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 an ability to, to step into that flow of love and forgiveness, it may go from like a, a, an 87% of hate to like an 86.5, right? But even that half percent is a half percent less hate in this world. There's a half percent more love in this world. And isn't that what we need? So those people, right? I can think of like five of them right now. Um, I want them to have the best life possible. I want their relationships to be the most happy, fruitful thing in the world. I want their professional careers just to like just explode and be good. And I believe 80% of that right now. <laughs> right? I do. I'd say where I'm at. I, like, I believe 80% of that. If I heard that um, this person I'm thinking of, like their four tires like all of a sudden exploded and then like the axles fell to the ground and no one got hurt, I'd be like... <laughs> Right? I would. I'm being honest. But what I hope for, right? What I hope for is I could see that person in the hallway of the grocery store. Well, not hallways. That sounds creepy. In the hallways of the grocery store. What kind of grocery store is you going to, Sire? <laughs> in the aisle, right? I hope that when I see them, it wouldn't pause my breath. What I hope I could extend is the kingdom of God. So let me, for just really important purposes, what forgiveness is not. Because sometimes at church, or in spirituality, we can glamorize forgiveness. And maybe you're here and you are a victim of abuse or trauma uh, of any sort, right? In a church, in a family, in a workplace environment, trauma and abuse and violence is still trauma, abuse, and violence, right? What forgiveness is not? Forgiveness is not forgetting. That is a bunch of not good things, right? 
forgiveness, forgive and forget works if it's like, um, oh man, I sure like the Timberwolves and I don't like that they lose. Well, right? Like I can forgive and forget that, right? You should, I should, my partner should, I hope Nikki would forgive me, but I hope that she would not forget that, um, that maybe the tone of my voice that I use when we're arguing is not life-giving to her and that she could remind me, I don't like it when, right? You should remember the trauma that has happened to you. You should remember, if I go into that space, this might happen again, right? Sometimes we treat forgiveness as we have to restore what our relationship was before. Okay, I'll use those people that I don't want their tires to fall off anymore, right? Those people. Um, forgiveness does not mean now we get to be buddies again, right? Forgiveness can be, I want the best life for you. I do not want to be held captive when I hear your name. I actually want you to move and flourish in the kingdom of God, um, but if they called me and said, like, hey, you want to grab lunch? I'd be like, no, no, I don't ever want to eat food with you ever again, right? And I don't mean it. It sounded mean. But I, really, honestly, like, I, whatever we had was great. And it got me where I am today. But we are now going in two different directions. And I don't owe you that anymore, right? I don't. And sometimes we feel, do you guys ever, sometimes you feel pressure that you have to go back to how it was before, Right? It's like, no, we don't have to anymore. We, there's so much love and beauty in this world, and I hope you extend it and find it, but it doesn't have to be me. And you're no longer my responsibility. Forgiveness might mean having to set up boundaries. Right? It might, and I'm, I, I don't do this with my parents, but I know a lot of people have to do it with their family members, of saying, hey, we will talk and hang out, um, but we're not going to talk about politics. We're not talking about religion. Right? And sometimes people feel that as like, oh, why can't I be? It's like, no, you lost that. Why? Because you've used it in violence. You've used it as a way to hold something over me. So setting up boundaries is really, really healthy. So what I hope for you, friends, and those watching and those listening, I hope that we can move in this place of love and benevolence, and we can be like that king. And for no reason, we can just extend kindness. Let's pray. So God, A, I thank you that you are benevolent. And I trust that you don't want my tires to explode and fall the axle on the ground, that I believe that you want nothing but good and beautiful things for me. And even when I call you a thief and a liar, and even though I call myself some horrible person, the song you sing is of love and beauty and grace. I thank you for the way that even though I try drawing lines of when forgiveness can stop for myself, there's never a line. I get to swim in this ocean of love and inclusion and beauty. And I ask that we can awaken to that. Pray for my friends who are listening, who are here, as we go through, like, the hate list. <laughs> I ask that you would, you would deposit, or not deposit, you would help us awaken to the love that's always been there. And that we would choose 